What is the letter of 1 Peter all about? What are its ideological themes? How is it connected to the rest of the Bible? Let's find out. Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and you're listening to The Charge. First, let's take a look at the theological themes of 1 Peter. The theology of 1 Peter is fundamentally a pastoral theology. Peter writes out of a pastor's concern for a people who are struggling with their faith in light of suffering. Peter's declared purpose in 5.12 is encouragement of the believers, and that encouragement comes through knowing the true grace of God. Peter points out this grace of God to the saints he addresses by developing several theological themes. He tells the exiles about the work of God the Father, that is, patriology, the Holy Spirit, pneumatology, of Jesus Christ, Christology, and the saints' relationship to the Trinitarian God, that is, worship. Peter tells them who they are as a church, ecclesiology, and how they are to relate to each other and the world, that is, ethics, holiness, and missiology. Peter continually points to the ultimate ground for their encouragement, that is, hope, that they have through what God has done, soteriology, and will do, that is, eschatology, in order to promote understanding and to build up the churches he addresses in their context of persecution, that is, theology of suffering. These themes are continually mixed, overlapped, and intermingled throughout the text. One cannot ultimately speak of Christology without speaking of suffering and soteriology, nor can one speak of suffering without speaking of hope and eschatology. This is therefore an imperfect construct for dealing with the depth of 1 Peter's theology, yet it will nonetheless serve the occasion for dealing with the core theological matters that are at hand. Ralph Martin aptly sums up the epistle. 1 Peter is above all a theological, ecclesiological document bent on demonstrating to a disenfranchised and alienated people that their real roots are in the people of God of both covenant ages, and their heritage of faith and hope is the religious antidote to the prevailing loss of identity. End quote. First, let's take a look at pastoral theology. There are many theological themes that permeate the letter, but it is the pastoral care and intention of the author that coheres in the variety of subjects. John Eliot understands this pastoral intention well. He avers, the continued existence and growth of the community as a whole depended on maintaining those elements of their communal life, which suffering and continued hostility threatened to undermine namely, a common sense of their unique, divinely conferred identity and purpose, a sustaining social cohesion, and fervent commitment to mission nurtured by a unifying faith and hope involving steadfast loyalty to God, Jesus Christ, and the Brotherhood." End quote. Whatever Peter writes is ultimately an expression of his love and care for the church in exile, yet he waits till the end of the letter to declare his purpose of encouragement. His offering of encouragement is expressed throughout in terms of concern for the church's suffering, 
which is mitigated by their eschatological hope with all its present-day implications. The past work of God in Christ, that is, death and resurrection, and the promise of future blessing are the reminders that Peter uses to encourage the church. In 5.1 and following, we have the most explicit expression of pastoral language. We have here four levels of relationship, three of which function pastorally. First is Christ as the chief shepherd. Second is Peter as an elder myself. Third is the elders among you. And fourth is the flock. Willing, humble, and responsible oversight and submission is encouraged throughout the passage. Next, let's consider the Trinity. It is the Trinitarian God who is the protagonist in the letter. The letter begins with a strongly implicit Trinitarian understanding. It is God the Father who chooses and destines. It is the Spirit who sanctifies, and it is Jesus Christ who offers his blood and is to be obeyed. Throughout the epistle, God is mentioned 39 times, Christ 22 times, 10 times with Jesus, but never Jesus alone, and the Spirit four times. All relationship to God is in and through Christ in 1 Peter. Now on to patriology, the study of God as Father. God's primary work is evidenced where God the Father is said to be the one who mercifully gives life and hope through raising Christ from the dead. And God is the protector of the saints through the gift of faith until the day of their salvation. God is the one by whom his people are named and to whom his people belong. God is the one who judges both the church and those who disobey. And for this reason, the author stresses the need to do God's will, which is closely connected to doing good works. God's holiness, especially as exemplified in Christ and his sufferings, is held up as the basis for the call of the church to holiness. Christ is our next focus. It is through Christ's death that individuals can have relationship with God. It is through Christ's resurrection that believers have new life. And it is through Jesus Christ's parousia, or second coming, that the individual's response to God's initiative, that is faith, will shown to be genuine or not. It is Jesus who will bring ultimate salvation upon his return, yet the majority of references to Christ are to his suffering. It is in fact because of the believer's willingness to follow the call of Christ to holiness that Christians are maligned and abused. This call to follow Christ as an example is not just a call to holiness, but a call to suffering. Pneumatology deals with the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who has sanctified the exiles of the dispersion, rather than the one who is in the process of sanctifying believers. Holy Spirit also testified to the prophets of old in regard to the salvation that would come through Christ, and it is the same Spirit who brings this good news to the recipients of this letter. The Spirit of God is present, that is, resting on you, to the Christian who is suffering, offering blessing. Soteriology considers the topic of salvation. Core to the understanding of salvation in 1 Peter is that God is the merciful giver of salvation, which starts with new birth, continues into a living hope, and is completed through Christ's resurrection. This is in contrast to the feudal ways of your ancestors that believers have now been ransomed from by Christ's death. Verse 2.24 most clearly describes what was accomplished through Christ's suffering and crucifixion. 
Christ bears the sins of believers so that they might live in freedom from sin and for righteousness and might also experience healing. And Christ's death leads to the end of alienation from God, for individuals are now brought to God. 1 Peter also teaches that believers are to have the same intention as Christ in accepting suffering, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. This means that innocent suffering for the sake of Christ indicates that the individual has attained a profound level of self-control in regard to sin. The Christian that willingly accepts suffering out of obedience to Christ has made a substantial decision regarding being finished with sin. The present soteriological reality of the believers was cause for indescribable joy, for they were, through faith, receiving the salvation of their souls. For Peter, though, the fact that believers were still suffering indicates that they had not ultimately been saved, for this final salvation comes only with their glorification at the return of Christ. They had indeed been converted and received a foretaste of salvation and the promise of salvation, but would not experience the fullness of salvation until the parousia of Christ. 1 Peter contains some of the most significant metaphorical and descriptive statements about the church in the whole New Testament. Peter establishes the core identity of the churches as he addresses members of the church universal, which brooks no rivals in terms of social grouping, either in race, politics, nationhood, or religion. The church is on a level in God's eyes that surpasses them all. To see God's own people in any way less would amount to idolatry, for the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Donald Sr. states, They are Israel, and therefore the author can rhetorically lavish on the Christians all the biblical imagery and symbols that described Israel and its destiny, and therefore this bountiful theological vision is the foundation for the author's pastoral encouragement for the communities he addresses." End quote. This status has not always been the case, but is only because of God's mercy. This type of language is previewed in chapter 2, verse 5, where the believers are collectively declared to be living stones who form a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, give some clues about the nature of structure and authority in the communities that Peter addresses beyond our previous discussion of pastoral theology. Here there is some type of hierarchy in authority, a chain of command, that has first Christ as the chief shepherd, second Peter as the elder exhorting the elders among you, third the elders who exercise oversight, and fourth the flock who are under the charge of the elders. Here the younger people are also to submit to the authority of those who are older. It is this passage that gives scholars cause to debate the date of the letter in regard to its implied ecclesial development. Paul Ochtemeyer writes, On the one hand, the notion of Christ as chief shepherd and bishop, with the implication of underlings exercising such oversight, the danger of elders lording it over the people under their charge, and the warning not to assume church leadership for material gain, implying a paid leadership could, taken together, point to a more advanced and hence later stage of church order. End quote. Ethics is up next for examination. The community of Christ is called to holiness both in their personal and communal conduct. This includes preparation of the mind and discipline of the self, 
which empowers individuals to overcome fleshly desires. Christians are called to a deep and mutual love within the congregation that prohibits those attitudes and behaviors that divide and deceive and arise out of selfish ambition. Also prohibited are those vices that arise from fleshly self-indulgence, such as drunkenness. For the followers of Christ are to be serious and hospitable servants who control their tongues. Believers are not to be overbearing, but are to manifest the virtues of submission and humility. Christology, eschatology, and soteriology have everything to do with the ethics believers are called to. For, according to Ochtemeyer, the imperative for action is found in the new eschatological reality represented by the risen and glorified Christ. The saving grace brought to reality in that divine act results in a distinctive way of life in which God's plan for the whole of the world begins to take place. In the Christian's actions, the divine plan and indeed the divine presence are manifested." End quote. We'll now take a look at the church's relation to the world. How the church interacts with the world is especially crucial here for the understanding and conduct of the church, for it is because of the church's stance that believers are persecuted and suffer. The epistle is remarkable, in Senior's words, in its ability to thread its way between maintaining the integrity of Christian commitment within the life of the community and conformity with the social mores of the surrounding culture. Therefore, all of the members of the community are to submit to or participate in the normal created structures of society." End quote. Davids, however, makes three essential points concerning the Christian's relationship to the world. First, they must live as aliens in regard to the surrounding culture. Second, their lives are to be the embodiment of virtue and the display of good works. Third, they are to, quote, endure without complaint such abuse as they may receive for their good lifestyle and obedience to God, end quote. There was apparently a large number of slaves and wives having non-believing husbands. The church drew many of their numbers from the marginalized ranks of society and therefore offended the public by making their appeals directly to these people rather than through their husbands and masters. Thus, persecution came partly because of the egalitarian ethic that was lived out among the Christians as an expression of the holiness that Christ called them to. Yet. Peter was calling the church to both a discerned acceptance and rejection of surrounding culture, contra David Balk's claim of mere accommodation as is expressed in the household code, that is, the section addressing slaves, wives, husbands, and submission to rulers. Leonard Goppel declares one encounters in the institutions of society not only the will of the Lord of history, but also human caprice and injustice. Hence, it corresponds to the scope of its thematic focus when the letter requires the subjection of oneself to Caesar and, at the same time, characterizes Rome as Babylon." End quote. John Eliot sums up the situation these believers faced as he writes, in the face of public slander, insults, unjust accusation of wrongdoing, and the suffering resulting from such treatment by non-believing outsiders, the Jesus movement was called upon to demonstrate its honor, distinctive holiness, and moral integrity, and faithfully to maintain its commitment to God, Jesus Christ, 
and one another with the hope of gaining even erstwhile detractors to its cause." End quote. We now come to the theology of suffering. The pastoral purpose of the epistle is in large part a response to the suffering from local persecutions that these Christian communities were encountering. Eliot alliterates eloquently to elucidate the elements of the issue. Quote, this suffering, if continued and ignored, eventually would have led to discouragement, despair, and possible defection from the Christian community, for it would have undermined the confidence, cohesion, and commitment of its members." End quote. Peter makes the claim that suffering is only of short duration in the context of rejoicing in the hope of heaven. These trials benefit believers in that they test the genuineness of their faith. Those who suffer for doing right, that is, God's will, receive God's approval and are in fact following the example of Christ himself. For it is, as Senior declares, Christ's victory over death and the powers of evil that is not just a model or pattern for Christian destiny, but also the dynamic force that makes it possible." End quote. Enduring suffering, therefore, has everything to do with continuing sanctification and following the will of God. This is in contrast to following the ways of debauchery, doing what the Gentiles like to do, which will bring peace with the world, but enmity with God. In chapter 4, verses 12-16, the theme of rejoicing and suffering, even sharing Christ's sufferings, receives its high point in 1 Peter as the churches are exhorted to glorify God and know that the Spirit of God is resting on them. Finally, the brothers and sisters are reminded that other Christians throughout the world are suffering as they are, but that Christ will indeed restore, support, and strengthen them. This brings us to eschatology. The whole orientation of the epistle from beginning to end is eschatological, grounded in Christ's resurrection and looking towards his parousia. Peter reminds the believers of the already, that they have been given a new birth into a living hope through Christ's resurrection and the not yet, that they will receive an imperishable inheritance in heaven. The eschatological orientation ties together the work of Christ, the believer's present situation of suffering, and the glorious hope the church shares because of the present work of the Spirit and the certainty of Christ's parousia. There is both a temporal and spatial eschatological focus in 1 Peter. The temporal looks at eschatological matters dealing with the past, for example, the flood, crucifixion, and resurrection, but especially looks to the parousia of Christ. The temporal also includes those messianic woes that Christians endure as they await the second coming and the final judgment. Peter apparently expects an imminent parousia as he uses vocabulary such as about to, a little while, the end of everything is at hand, and the time has come. The spatial perspective concerns heaven and hell as well as angels and demons. Heaven is where the believer's eternal inheritance is kept, the place of origin of the Holy Spirit, and the place Christ has returned to in order to exercise sovereignty over all, particularly authorities and powers. Angels are mentioned twice in the epistle with only a secondary relevance while the church is exhorted to resist the devil is portrayed as the adversary looking for someone to devour. Hope is the basis for Christian living because it is a living hope. 
It is that which Christians are born into through the resurrection of Christ. Hope is the stuff that gives the church the power to live a life of love and sacrificial giving in the midst of suffering and in contrast to a surrounding culture that is opposed to the way of Christ. Significantly, hope has a key role in alienating believers from the dominant culture and at the same time giving them the strength to endure that alienation, for according to Octomeyer, one of the realities of the new begetting and subsequent new birth brought about by the generative power of God's Word is expressed by the phrase, living hope. Its form indicated on the one hand its origin in the risen and living Christ, and on the other hand its contrast to other hopes that cannot be characterized by their relationship to life. Such new hope brings with it a new set of loyalties that grow out of and that are hence attuned to its reality. This new set of realities is therefore at odds with former loyalties, and it transforms those who hold them from participants in to people exiled and alienated from the society dominated by those former loyalties." End quote. David's averse, this is not a hope-so type of hope, a type of pious optimism that all will turn out right in the end, but a deep conviction about the return of Christ. End quote. This hope therefore leads to rejoicing with an indescribable and glorious joy because it is inseparably tied to faith and therefore instrumental in bringing about Christ's present salvation to the saints. Also, this faith and hope are derived from the fact of the resurrection of Christ. Finally, it is hope that is assumed to be the cause for the unbeliever's interest in what ultimately stands behind the believer. And because of this, the Christian must be prepared to give an accounting for that hope which is within. Let's now consider the relationship of 1 Peter to the Old Testament. Beyond the dozens of quotes from and allusions to the Old Testament, the theological themes of 1 Peter provide an important study in continuity and discontinuity with the themes of the Old Testament, and are here listed. 1 Peter's overarching purpose of pastoral concern is in continuity with those leaders and prophets such as Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah who sought the Lord out of concern for Israel. The character of God in the Old Testament as merciful and loving and as one who chooses, predestines, sanctifies, gives life, protects, and expects faith and obedience is consistent with 1 Peter. The Trinitarian understanding of God may be hinted at in the Old Testament, but it is strongly suggested in 1 Peter. The Abrahamic covenant is concerned with making a people for God who would in turn bless the world. This theme is developed by Peter to emphasize God's own people, and the relationship and witness of the church to the world is a theme throughout the epistle. The Davidic covenant promises that an heir of David will rule eternally, which Peter continues to emphasize through the presence of Christ, through his spirit, particularly in the coming eschaton. The prophesied new covenant of Jeremiah expresses its fulfillment throughout the letter, particularly in the believer's obedient relationship to God through Christ and the Spirit. While the people of the Old Covenant were gathered primarily through the law, religious observances, the land, the temple, and bloodline, those of the new were joined through Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Priesthood in the Old Testament was limited to males from a particular lineage who were trained for a particular role, whereas in 1 Peter, all believers are seen as priests as they offer spiritual sacrifices and proclaim the mighty acts of God. In much of the Old Testament and 1 Peter, the reality of exile is pronounced. In relation to the surrounding peoples, both the Old Testament and 1 Peter exhort God's people to holiness and to follow the ways of God. However, the hope in the Old Testament is a return to the land and freedom from oppressors, whereas in 1 Peter there is a living hope and great joy in the present, but ultimately a hope for an inheritance in heaven that is imperishable. Salvation in the Old Testament has to do primarily with wholeness, that is, shalom in this life in the land that is freedom from slavery and national enemies, as well as forgiveness of sins. Yet, 1 Peter's soteriological emphases are grounded on Christ's death and resurrection and are focused on the forgiveness of sin, present sanctification, and the future hope of heaven brought by the parousy of Christ, which is the fulfillment of the day of the Lord of the Old Testament. 1 Peter also shows discontinuity yet fulfillment with the Old Testament as the substitutionary death of Christ for the remission of sin makes the elaborate cultic sacrificial system obsolete. The suffering of the people of God both in the Old Testament and 1 Peter arises out of their enmity with surrounding cultures and nations. In the Old Testament, this is cause for God to bring deliverance, as in the book of Judges, or is actually a result of God's deserved judgment, as in the prophets. In either case, great travail is present and there is no place for rejoicing. In 1 Peter, however, suffering may in fact be a sign of the saints' faithfulness to God, and they are therefore encouraged to rejoice greatly. In the Old Testament, joy comes as a result of being saved from enemies or being returned from exile. In 1 Peter, joy is experienced especially in the context of exile and under persecution from enemies. Finally, let's see how 1 Peter relates to the rest of the New Testament. There are strong points of commonality on all the major theological themes within 1 Peter when compared to the rest of the New Testament canon. In fact, on the basis of terminology and theology, 1 Peter has often been characterized as a variant of Paulinism. However, Eliot strives to free 1 Peter from its Pauline bondage and states that 1 Peter is the product of the Petrine tradition transmitted by Petrine tradens of a Petrine circle. End quote. Tradens are simply those who pass down a tradition. Some points in common with Paul and the rest of the New Testament include the following. First Peter's pastoral concern throughout the epistle is very much in the spirit of the Pauline pastoral epistles. The Trinitarian thought of First Peter is also very compatible with the rest of the New Testament, particularly in its Trinitarian formulations. The whole New Testament, along with 1 Peter, is thoroughly eschatological in seeing past events such as Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and Pentecost as powerful and present realities, as these events assure the Church of the certain coming of the Lord and the ultimate salvation that will follow. The soteriological centrality of Christ's death is present in 1 Peter as it is throughout the New Testament. The Church is God's elect people and all are considered priests. Believers are to live the gospel ethic of extending themselves for each other, for this covers a multitude of sins. 
It is the genuine faithfulness of Christians that evoke praise and joy in other believers who care about them. The saints no longer behave as they used to and as the Gentiles still do, but are rather to lead transformed lives, not conformed to the world. As a result of this stance towards the surrounding culture, believers suffer persecution, yet are to rejoice. Even more so, the saints are to rejoice that they participate in the sufferings of Christ. Finally, hope is a vital component in the New Testament canon. However, there are some valuable theological distinctives that 1 Peter contributes to the New Testament that are worth mentioning. Peter uses the example of Christ's suffering and Isaiah 53 as an encouragement to ethical living for his readers in the midst of their suffering. As described previously, 1 Peter teaches that believers who have suffered in the flesh have finished with sin, which means that they have attained a high level of self-control as evidenced by their willingness to suffer. The epistle also describes the present soteriological reality of the believers as a cause for indescribable joy, for they were through faith receiving the salvation of their souls. Living hope is a unique way to describe the life that Christians were born into in an expectation of heaven. Hope is key to the whole epistle and gives it a deep structural unity. Also, hope plays a distinctive part in evangelistic witness to unbelievers. Hope in what Christ has done and will do is used to re-envision and change all human affairs and relationships, from church government to family life. 1 Peter contains a peculiar passage referring to the Spirit of Christ testifying to the prophets of old in regard to the circumstances of Christ's suffering. 1 Peter 3.18 is the only place in the New Testament that describes the Spirit as raising Christ from the dead, if the NIV rendering is to be accepted. The cryptic passage about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison is unique to 1 Peter, as is the forthright declaration that baptism now saves you. It is the relationship itself of 1 Peter to the Old Testament and to the rest of the New Testament canon that is key to the whole message of the letter. Martin expands further. By a common participation in the messianic blessing realized in Christ and the New Age, and through a shared study of ancient scriptures, both first-generation Christians, represented by Peter the Apostle at the fountainhead, and any subsequent generation of responsive believers stand together as on the same ground." End quote. So, there you have it. We've examined the key theological themes of 1 Peter and the epistle's relationship to the rest of the Bible. Peter offers this final encouragement in chapter 5, verse 10. And, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. I've got a lot more podcasts, so please check them out. Peace to everyone.